Last Sunday, Vernon presented a collection of Proverbs about the justice of God. And we saw that justice and revenge belongs to God. And this strikes deep into us. And I'll be honest for at least my wife and I, we have a very high sense of justice. When we perceive that there is some sense of injustice going on, it really does ruffle our feathers. So last Sunday, you saw that because God is the creator of humanity, God is going to hold us accountable for how we treat each other. And today, we're going to be a little bit more specific in how we speak to one another. Vernon's sermon last Sunday pierced my heart. I was convicted because I feel to live out simply the very standard of life that I present for myself. You see what I'm saying? Like, forget about God's standard for a moment. Just I fail to live out just what my own standard is for living. So thank God for Jesus, who satisfies the requirements of God's standard for me. Because I can't even live up to my own standard. Thank God that Jesus satisfied the justice of God for his people. So the central idea of Proverbs is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's the central claim throughout these 31 chapters in application to womanhood, manhood, marriage, adultery, or even today's topic, how we use our words. If you fear God, you will not see the justice of God as an obstacle to what you really want to do to people, but the pathway to what you really need and what they really need. The justice of God, here's what it does. The justice of God frees you from you being your own avenger, right? Because it may feel the moment in the heat of the anger to feel good, like to be able to give the person what you think they deserve vocally or in action. But we have to agree with Jesus' wisdom that it's much better to fear God who cannot just destroy the body, but also the soul in hell, right? The accountability that God can give to somebody, if you really believe in him, is far more just than what we can do. Those who fear God, trust God, will hold all injustice accountable. And whether you realize it or not, this is the very framework and the foundation, even for our, whether it's local, state, or federal justice system. Where do we get as people the idea that things and people must be held accountable? Why not we hold this northern, white, European idea that you do what you want to do, you do what you want to do, you do what you want to do, we all get along. Why do we have this deep sense when you are wrong, payment must be made? It's because you and I are made in the image of God. Those who trust in the justice of God are going to rethink and constantly rethink how they use their words and what it reveals about their hearts. And that's where we're going with this collection of Proverbs today. All right? Ready to put the seatbelt on? Let's go. Our proposition today is this, is that the wise, or to say in a New Testament sense, the, the Christian, the genuine Christian, expresses God's work in their hearts by how they use their words. That's the standard. And I'll be first to say, I fail at it. Today's wisdom is this. God has given power Two words. Number one, your words reveal the condition of your heart. We'll talk about that today. Your words are a gauge. It's a heartometer for what's really going on on the inside. Now, in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus is called by John the Word of God. Remember that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and eventually this Word took on flesh, and this was Jesus. Jesus, as the Word of God, reveals the heart of God. No one can ever say that God, of the Old, God, because of the Old Testament, is merely or only a God of wrath. Because Jesus is the Word of God, and words reveals the hearts. God ordained words to be life-giving. That's number two that we're looking at today. Jesus, as the Word of God, restores hearts. What all of us have lost in Adam, the sense of injustice in this world, that this world is not right, Jesus took on flesh, suffered, and died to restore this and to redeem hearts. Think about it this way, Heritage. When God created all things back in Genesis 1, how did he do it? He used his words. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good, and so on, and so on. So today, we're going to be exploring these Proverbs about the restoring and the revealing nature of words. We're going to connect it to the wisdom of Jesus today about the relationship between words and the heart. And then we're going to finally look at Jesus' idea of justice, that all words and all hearts are going to be held accountable regardless of whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or Jew, a Muslim, a Sikh, a Buddhist, Christian. It does not matter. All people, all words, and all hearts will be held accountable. And then we're just going to talk plainly for a moment that all this stuff about the words and about the hearts and about the justice of God, what does this mean for you and I today as Christians here in Branchton? Okay, that's where we're going. Let's get started. And point one The call for you from these Proverbs is for you to embrace the power that God has given through words to restore and to reveal hearts. All right? That's the call. you got to embrace this. Over the past weeks, we've seen that God is the maker of all. It doesn't matter male, female, nation, tribe, or tongue, geographical region, high class, low class, everywhere in between. God is the maker of us all. God is the maker and sustainer of all, and he is the redeemer of many. Now, last week, you saw God as chief justice, and you're like, yes, you love the idea that God is going to hold all people accountable. But then we begin to think, oh, wait, that includes me. You're like, oh, maybe I want a softer judicial system. But you have to remember that you are made in the image of God. And God created all things through speaking, through his words. And that is why, for you and I as Christians, and if we are going to live well for Jesus on this earth, it is essential for you and I to consider our words because words have power. Let me put my nerd hat on for a moment. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Genesis narrative, this is long before Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. If you read his narrative of how in this world he created, how all things came into being, there is one central figure called the One. And he uses music to create all things. Isn't that kind of cool? This beautiful symphony. And then Middle Earth was. In C.S. Lewis's Genesis narrative, you want to know how Narnia and all things are created? Before all things, there is a lion. 
named Aslan. And Aslan sings everything into being. Isn't that beautiful? What Tolkien and Lewis are trying to communicate to you as the reader is the biblical idea that words have creative and life-giving power. Let's take a look at our first proverb, Proverbs 18, 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So it's clear God has given power to the tongue. It holds the power of life. It holds the power of death. It can heal and it can destroy, right? Think about it this way. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and guys, we went through this in Kindred in our first book this year. We looked at the, the letter of James. James spoke about the nature of words in the third chapter, and he compared the tongue to a horse's bit, remember that? Or the rudder of a ship. Small things that can control and shape where powerful things go. And he says, that's the tongue. James says, your tongue is the bit for your life. Your tongue is the rudder of your heart. He said that the tongue can set a forest on fire, right? The destructiveness of the tongue. And he said that the tongue can set you on fire and put you on a collision course with hell. The tongue, he said, in one end, curses men and then comes on to synagogue or comes to the church and blesses God. And you see the hypocrisy of that. Because all men are created in the image of God. Even the injustice that's being done to you and even the injustice you're causing to other people. And James says, you cannot tame the tongue. It needs to be tamed by somebody greater than you. The wise know the vitality and the destructiveness of the tongue. And they use it to restore hearts, and they use it to reveal their own hearts. Proverbs 15.4 says this, that a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. I really had to hold myself back, church, because this imagery of the tree of life I took so much out of this manuscript today because this tree of life imagery is so important because there's only three places in all the scriptures that makes note of the tree of life. In Genesis 1, here in Proverbs, and then not again until the end of the book of Revelation. Humanity was created with the tree of life offered to us. It's taken away. It's brought up again in the Proverbs, and then it's not spoken of again until the very end when God redeems all things, the tree of life comes back. I had to stay away from it and go deeper into it. That's all I needed to say for right now. We see that there are two kinds of tongues that connects with the idea that death and life are in the tongue, in our speech. First, we see a soothing tongue. You see that? This is about gentleness. This is about calmness as we speak to people. The tongue is a tree of life, which means that God wants to use our speech to be restorative in the lives of other people. Sometimes you have to hurt to heal. We've talked about that before. But nonetheless, God wants our speech to be used in his restoring process in the lives of people. But there's another kind of speech, right? We see that there's a speech that has perversion in it. And when you think of this word perversion, we normally go somewhere in the Americana culture that we shouldn't go here. We need to simply think about this word perverted meaning something that's broken or something that's bent. You are meant to think of a very strong metal bar that has been bent. Or you are to think about 
just the human spine as another example. And the curbing of the spine that is called scoliosis, right? Those are images that better fits what the wisdom writer means right here. That we come to this world with a bent in our speech because the source of our words has a bent in it as well. Bent and broken speech has one aim, and that is to crush the spirit. We are hurt, so we want to hurt with our words. But think about for a moment the words that people used at the cross of Jesus. We just recently went through it on a Wednesday night together, right? All the taunts, the mocking words. What was the intention behind these people on the cusp of Passover for using the words that they did at the cross of Jesus? Their hopes were that their words would crush his spirit, which is why Matthew says that his spirit was not crushed, that he yielded up his spirit after he was done satisfying the wrath of God. Jesus took on the damage that words are ultimately meant to do to you and do to me, which is to crush our spirits. Next proverb, Proverbs 12, 18. Solomon says that there is one who speaks rashly, and it's like the thrusts of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. I love this imagery here because I love swords. I like lightsabers, but swords are pretty cool too. I visualize a swordsman jabbing and thrusting his sword into an opponent, knowing right where the seam of the armor is and being able to jab that sword right in there to cause critical damage. Solomon says a person who speaks rashly is like the swordsman. A rash word is like the thrusting of a sword. It happens quickly, and it quickly jabs into a person. That's something that's so quick can hurt for so long. And if you've ever been jabbed by somebody's words, you know it was quick. One phrase, and you're still haunted by it even still today, right? And that is why we need to end with the justice of God, that Jesus is going to hold every single careless word accountable. We need that today. Because even though that jab, that thrust of the sword happened a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, decades ago, we're still haunted by it, right? Your words will cut into a person's heart, but I have to clarify something for a moment. The Bible often speaks about Scripture as a sword that can cut, right? There's the sword of the Spirit, and Hebrews talks about a sword that can divide, and that's the Word of God. The Bible speaks about preaching, being able to cut the hearts. That happened on the day of Pentecost with Peter's first sermon. They were cut to the hearts. That is not what Solomon is referring to here. Okay, You cannot associate that it is a negative thing when Scripture cuts into you. That's the good kind of cutting, the hurting to heal. Solomon is referring to a person who does not consider their words before they speak, which we'll get into more next Sunday. Words come out of the mouth without thinking about the hurts and the damage it will cause because they are hurt. Rash words cut, but words from the wise brings healing over time. Now, I am sure that you can identify at least one person in your life 
whom you have cut deeply with your words. I'm there. And you know who often gets the brunt of that, to be honest? It's my wife. You too, Vernon? He just he pointed at Carol just now, right? Now, I've sat down with people as a pastor and a counselor over the years to hear the damage that these little thrusts, these quick little jabs, have done to them over time, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. We live in a culture today, the Americana spirit majors in rash words, words that come out without thinking, right? Yet on the other hand, American culture claims that their highest value is tolerance today. Yet if you maintain a view that does not align with the cultural majority, you are quickly and rashly vilified, right? And at your fingertips, you have technology that can rashly express whatever comes to mind, and it can be instantly shared with masses. You have a sword in your hand. The question is, how will you use it? Now, we saw Peter in the garden, right? Sword lops off the high priest slave's ear, and Jesus says, put that back in, right? You have a sword in your hand, and it can be used to hurt, or it can be used to heal. It can be used to show whether you are a fool or whether God is working in you, whether you feel you've had this much growth, this much growth, this much growth. Your words will show. Those who fear God know this, and they wisely use words to meet the situation that they are in. And we'll talk more about that in the next set of Proverbs next Sunday. In our final proverb, we see why the tongue and why our words are so powerful. Proverbs 18.4 says this, that the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It's inconsistent of the Bible and of just real life to say that your words mean nothing. This contrasts with what Solomon says here. Words are deep. They come from deep within us. Now you see Proverbs is using water imagery right now. We see deep waters, fountains, bubbling brooks. And each image is used to help you understand the relationship between words and its source. We know that water is life-giving, right? How many of you are thirsty right now? I am. Right? We know how, well, this is tea, but it's made with water. We know how soothing and life-giving that water can be. But we also know, especially as Floridians, how damaging water can be, right? John's very way of life is built on helping those restore their homes when water does its damage, right? Water is the perfect image. It shows how wise our scriptures are to show that water is like words. Power to give life and power to destroy. Water has a source. It's a bubbling brook. It bubbles up to the surface from somewhere. And as water reveals the quality of the source, so do your words reveal your quality. The source of your words is your heart, which we're going to discuss in application as we go to the wisdom of Jesus. But right now we're going to stop and we're going to see the call of the Proverbs right now. 
Every Christian, over time, must grow to see that they have a ministry. They have a service to provide on this earth through their words. You don't have to be clergy. You don't have to be a deacon to have a ministry of words. You don't have to be on a stage to have a ministry of words. If you are a Christian, you have a ministry of words. But what if you're a Christian who remains silent and uses the excuse, I'm not so good with words. Have you ever said that before? Oh, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. We're going to get to that in application. God will use your words, one, to help you see what's going on in your heart, what's bubbling up from the source. God will use your words to help, to heal, to restore people. So you must grow in your use of words. we got to leave that excuse where it belongs, at the cross of Jesus, because he died for that excuse. Like a bubbling brook, your words can reveal what is going on deep inside of you. Now we're going to shift to application. We're going to return to the justice of God that Vernon brought up last week. And what it reveals about our hearts and what it reveals about our words, okay? Let's take a dive into application. And here's kind of how I can phrase it best for you. So I think that you need to allow the truth of Jesus' future accountability like, we know, we have information about how the end is going to be. And because we know that end is certain, we need to allow it to reshape our perspective on our hearts and our words. Okay? The first thing that I want you to consider in light of Proverbs is that your perspective on this relationship between your words and your hearts need to be reshaped. You and I live in a culture that wants no accountability in life. No accountability, especially for our words. We have used our words to cut, and people have used their words to cut us as well. We need to allow this wisdom to reshape and to retune us. You see, you and I are like the strings of this guitar. I often use the guitar image to help you understand things about the nature of your heart and the nature of your soul. That's the beauty of music, because God created it, right? Aslan sings things into being. The one in Middle Earth has this orchestra that creates all of life. The source of all music is God himself, right? And there's reason to this. Throughout use, throughout misuse, whether it just sits there and does nothing, like some of us in our words, or whether we actively use it, these strings are going to go out of tune. It doesn't matter if I bought the best strings. It doesn't matter if I'm the best guitar player on the planet. These strings are going to go out of tune. It's a fact of life. After Lord's Supper, when I pick up the guitar, I have to tune it. It's been sitting there for a half hour. It's just life. It's the nature of things. Your heart and my heart are going to get out of tune, which is why we sang, and we're reminded of this through Come Now Fount this morning. But luckily, strings can be retuned, and so can your heart, and so can your words. These strings can return to the standard of the pitch that they were designed to, so when I put my fingers in certain places, it will play a chord that I hope is aesthetically appealing to you. Your heart is going to get out of tune as well. 
Your words are the pitch to show you that your heart is out of tune. Do you get that? Your words are those individual notes and chords that are being played. That's why Aslan sings beauty into this world. Your heart will go out of tune. You live in a fallen and broken world where injustice is real. You too are fallen. You too are broken. And you too have committed injustice. Though redeemed, you are still being renewed. And so am I. Your words are meant to help you identify when you get out of step, when you lose your pitch, when you need to be retuned. And the life of Jesus is the tuner by which our hearts and our words are aligned to. Now, I've heard many people say, especially men, especially men, I'm not so good with words, so I can't do blank. I can't pray. I can't talk about Jesus. I can't talk to another person. They use this as an excuse to remain silent, to remain passive as a man. But here's the thing. You can probably cannot dribble a basketball with your offhand, can you? I mean, some people are like, I can't even dribble a basketball with my strong hand, right? But for me, I, I can dribble a basketball pretty good with my right hand. I'm weaker with my left hand. I certainly cannot, cannot do that. At one point, even professional basketball players have problems dribbling with their off hand. But they got over it, right? And how did they go get over it? They kept doing it. And they had somebody on the outside looking in, saying, you're doing it wrong. Or keep it up, keep pushing, using their words to move them along, right? How much more? Do you need to grow through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and through the people of God to grow to use your words well? Amen? It's awkward. You're going to mess up, right? I should have brought a basketball so you could see how terrible I am doing this. It wouldn't bounce anyway right here. But you will never grow if you will never try. If you use the excuse that you aren't good with your words... Your silence actually speaks. Your absence actually shows the type of presence that you have. And it speaks volumes about the condition of your heart. A Christian's perspective is this. Because of God's sanctifying work in us, that he's finishing what he first started in us with the death of Jesus, that our words and therefore our hearts are constantly going to need to be reformed throughout time. So we lament that Yes, we had a reformation in 1517. Thank God for Martin Luther. But in every day, in every week, in every month, in every year, in every age, there needs to be constant reformation of the individual and of the church. One of the factors in this is the justice of God. So let's get to it. Remember, the rich and the poor have one thing in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. That was a previous proverb we looked at. Every day... You get to speak to people, good, bad, or otherwise, are broken image bearers of God. They look and sound the way they do because they have a creator whose name is Yahweh. That's the burden and the blessing. 
You interact with image bearers of God every single day. All their shapes, all their sizes, all their backgrounds, all their hurts. And the way that you speak to them points right back boomeranging to your heart. And as a Christian, the way that you speak is meant not just to show them what's going on in your heart, but it's meant to point them to the Savior. Now let's see the wisdom of Jesus say this. Let's go to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. And you know who he's talking to now, right? You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Solomon uses water imagery in the Proverbs. Jesus uses tree imagery in the Gospels to speak of the relationship between your words and your heart. Trees are distinguished by their fruits. And there's just two options that the wisdom of Jesus gives to us. Good trees, bad trees. Trees are distinguished by their fruit. Good fruit, good trees. Bad fruit, bad trees. The tree in this scenario is not a literal orange tree from an orange grove. But it's your heart, and the fruit are your words. That is the perspective that Jesus wants you to take on of the relationship between your words and your heart. Your words are the fruit, the byproduct of what is going on in your heart. So when we're done going through Proverbs and we only have a couple weeks left, we're going to be going to the New Testament and Paul's wisdom about the fruits of the Spirit. And that's our next sermon series when we're done with Proverbs. The full range of your words are going to show you the full range of your heart. Now this proves that life and the heart is far more complex than what modern Western American culture wants you to suppose. So the question you have to ask is, what do my words say about my heart? Jesus says right here that it shows that our hearts are evil. Now for those of us living in a culture that has told us since we were born that we are inherently good, we struggle with words like this, right? We struggle with Jesus who says that we are evil, or when Paul says that we are sinful, because the majority voice in this culture has told us time and time again that we're inherently good. And they have a logical claim that sometimes good people just do bad things. And that's a total contrast to the wisdom of Jesus. You have a decision today, will you walk in the way of the wisdom of the world, Will we take on the way of the wisdom of Jesus? Which one demonstrated more love towards you? That would be my question. Over the years at Heritage, I have attempted to clarify what the Bible means by evil. And I think the best image right now for us to remember is the image of the spine. Our spines were created to be straight, to be able to bear our organs and muscles and tissues and tendons, to keep everything in so that we can live, right? Scoliosis is the bending, the curvature of the spine. This is what you and I need to acknowledge. Every single one of us, myself included, has spiritual scoliosis. 
And there's no chiropractor that can straighten it back out. Except one, and his name is the great physician. When the Bible teaches and says that humanity is evil, they are sinful, it's speaking to our corruption, our curvature, our bentness, our brokenness. It's not that I'm the most evil, the most heinous, the most depraved that I'll ever be at any point in history. I was a teenager once, all right? It is that without the work of God, I don't have a desire, nor do I even have any inclination or capacity to acknowledge, hey, I'm actually curved, and I want to be straightened out. No one has that desire, because we're curved inward. I am bent. I am curved. I was created to go this way, because I'm bent I'll invariably always just go this way. Me, me, me. Therefore, without the aid of God and the cross of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of this church, I will use my words to hurt people. Because I'm bent. But this is where the justice of God shines brightest. You ready to see it? It continues on in Matthew 12 and verse 36. And Jesus says, I tell you, Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I have been haunted by a word that Diane said at Gather several weeks ago, where she said, there's going to be a reckoning. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's going to be accounting for everything, even the careless word. I have a lot of careless words. I got a doubly bad because both of my jobs, I get paid to speak. I say a lot of words that I'm going to be held accountable for. That is why I try, I'm ad-libbing right now, to write a manuscript and make sure that every single word is prayed over because we are going to be held accountable for every single word that we put less care into. Jesus clarifies a couple of things here, and this is going to get Verdon's mojo going. There is going to be a coming day of judgment. I saw the passion in his face when he talked about the judgment throne of God last Sunday. He even threw my phone screen. There is a coming day of judgment. And the advent, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are proofs that there is going to be a future judgment. If Jesus did not take flesh, if he did not suffer on the cross, if he did not die on the cross, he didn't resurrect himself from the dead, there would be no basis for us to believe in anything, any justice being done on this earth. Because you know that any victim of a police shooting, any mom who's lost her son, whatever judgment the grand jury gives is not going to do the justice she needs in her heart. Right? I sound liberal right now, but that's okay. Christians should neither be conservative nor liberal. We should hurt both ends of the spectrum. God is going to hold all people accountable for their words, even their careless words, because he is king. So a part of the fear of the Lord is the idea that one day you will stand before your God and maker and king. And this should shape 
and this should reshape all the matters and all the affairs of your life, that you're constantly reforming your life. It's the starting point for every decision, every word, every action, all that you say, all that you feel, all the decisions that you make or don't make come from your heart. And Jesus wants you to keep this future reckoning in the forefront of your heart. You will be held accountable. Now, for the Christian, the idea of coming accountability of God for what people have said and done, that is our comfort. That is our hope, right? I don't have to attack people who have attacked me because God is going to take care of it at the eschaton. It frees us from vengeance destroying our hearts. It frees us to trust in God as our avenger. We don't need to go Hulk angry because God can make the Hulk look like Ant-Man. Right? It should sober us to know that God will hold us accountable for all of our words, even our careless words, even our rash words. Now, Jesus says here that you'll either be justified or you'll be condemned by your words. Jesus is not saying here that there are some magical words that you can say that makes you right with God. And he's not saying there are some magical words, on the other hand, that can condemn you before God. He's not saying that. You have to remember, in the judicial system, even though we have a jury by peers, just because they come out and say not guilty or guilty, that verdict doesn't make the person guilty or innocent. They've always been innocent or guilty, right? The words just prove what's already there. That's what Jesus means by your words will either justify or condemn you. Your words already show what's there because it's just a bubbling brook. Do you see that? Dr. Keller borrows an illustration from Francis Schaeffer called the invisible tape recorder. And this is so good. It convicts me, and that's why I'm sharing it. It's already cut into me. Francis Schaeffer has this illustration that's used to help people who push back against Christianity and the justice of God. You see, the people who push back against Christianity and justice of God, they have a hard time with God holding people accountable. And one of the things you may have heard us say is this, how can God hold someone accountable who lives in the middle of Africa in a tribe and they've never even heard the name of Jesus? How can God hold that person accountable? Have you ever heard that argument before? I have. What do you do with it? Schaefer's Invisible Tape Recorder is pretty good. They maintain it's unjust for God to hold people accountable to his standards. So the Invisible Tape Recorder teaches that even you cannot maintain your own standard of judgment. Forget about God for a moment. So there's this idea that God has created an invisible tape recorder that's attached to every person. Can you imagine this? Wherever you went, there's this invisible tape recorder that recorded everything you said and did. Scary, right? That's why it's convicting. But, however, this invisible tape recorder only goes on when you say words like, this person needs to do this. That person needs to do that. And then you come to the judgment day of Jesus, and Jesus does not hold you accountable for everything in God's word. He simply plays the tape recorder and plays all the things that you've said throughout your life that this person needs to say, this person needs to do, right? You know what the conclusion, what Dr. Schaefer would say is, 
you're guilty according to your own standard. Forget about the standard of God for a moment. You don't even simply live by your own standard that you harshly put upon others. See how convicting that is? I kept looking over my shoulder. Is there a tape recorder there? Right? Because once again, both of my jobs, I use words to show people where they're at so they can grow. Was with teenagers or with you, right? Lots of words. There's a lot of my invisible tape recorder. It's sobering. It's convicting. But we get the biblical essence of the illustration. We can't even live up to our own human standards, much less to God's standard. If your standard of living was my basis for knowing God and experiencing eternity, I would fail. You get that? The point of the illustration is this. Your words are so bent, they're so curved, your heart is so curved, you can't even attain to your own standard of living. But then there's Jesus, right? There's our hope-giving Jesus. What God did for us in Jesus is so unique. It is so special because Jesus is our legal defense. Jesus is our advocate. He has airtight arguments. And even beyond that, when the verdict comes in and says guilty, he tells the judge and jury, I will take the cost. I'll absorb the consequences for my defendant. He takes on the condemnation and the judgment that we deserve. You and I can't even live well by our own standards. But Jesus took on flesh and lived the life that we could not. So by his life and death, he changes us. He gives us his spirit. We grow to become more like him. He gives us his righteousness so that we can stand in the day of judgment. At the judgment, you and I will be literally simultaneously guilty, guilty, Father, yet forgiven. Because there is somebody that stands between us, and his name is Jesus. Guilty, yet forgiven. It's true, Lord. Everything that's played on that tape recorder, it's true. But then there's Jesus. God will hold you accountable for every word and every action. And that has to be the motive for you reforming your perspective on the relationship between your words and your heart. This is where the justice of God shines brightest. We stand condemned, guilty. But Jesus took on the cross. He took on that cursed tree to become our condemnation. He took on our condemnation so you and I can take on new hearts. And out of new hearts will come new words and new actions over time. So here's our perspective. Some of us, myself included, and I'll say more about this next week, we need the work of God in our lives for our words to be fewer. And you're like, yes, I get to the gold corral 15 minutes earlier. I don't necessarily mean that, though sometimes it's true. However, some of you need to speak more. And some of you need to speak more intentionally. Some need to stop behind, hiding behind the phrase, I'm just not good with words. You need to bear this before God in prayer and say, God, change me. We need to see what our words reveal about our hearts this morning, especially before we come to the table. 
Paul calls us for self-examination. And this is a beautiful set of Proverbs to get us to reflect. Words bubble to the surface, and it comes from our hearts. So we need to feel the weight of what our current words are revealing about the current condition of our hearts. In American culture, no one wants to be held accountable for what they say and do. What American culture teaches them is that no one can tell you about what you say or do. There's no accountability. And if someone tries to do that to you, you can cut your ties and just go the other way. That's what we learn in America. But that is not Christianity. We rely on Jesus, who died because of your every careless word. And I think that's a good starting point. Jesus was crucified because of your careless words and because of my careless words. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who fear God will have their hearts and their speech reformed. So at Heritage, this is what I pray our resolution is. And I've been praying this for us all week this week. That we will resolve to use our words to express what God's doing in our hearts. We know and we feel the weight of our careless words. We know the damage that has caused the people. And we need to feel the damage of what it caused to Christ. Because that's how we begin to kill what is broken inside of us. Because of Jesus, we have new hearts, which means over time, new words and new actions will begin to bubble up to the surface. 